This morning is our final week in our little book, Big Message series through the single chapter books of the Bible. And I do hope that you've been blessed um, through this little series. I know I have. To quickly recap, Obadiah, his big message was God judges his enemies but delivers his people. We had Philemon, whose message was the gospel changes everything. Little book of 2 John, love needs truth. The littlest book of 3 John, truth needs love. And this morning we arrive at our final little book, Jude. Jude is the longest of these shortest books of the Bible and by far the most complex. That is in part why I saved it for last. That's why, in part, the New Testament canon also saves it for second to last. Jude's complexity is only surpassed by the book of Revelation. Jude was named after its author, one of the four half-brothers of Jesus, who we know of from Matthew 13 and Mark 6. Uh, We know that although Jude had earlier rejected Jesus during his life and ministry, um, we know about that from John chapter 7, uh, Jude was later converted after Christ's resurrection. Hear about that in Acts chapter 1. And so Jude himself actually identifies for us his big message this morning, the reason that he's writing this particular letter to this particular unnamed church community. He tells us in verse 3, it's to exhort them to contend for the faith. Contend for the faith. Contend. Dictionary defines it as struggle in opposition, dispute earnestly, exert yourself in rivalry. Do all that for the faith, the true orthodox Christian faith. Jude is a call to arms of sorts. So we say where I'm from, them's fighting words. John MacArthur explains, Jude lived at a time when Christianity was under aggressive spiritual infiltration from Gnostic-like apostates and libertines. We addressed the heresy of Gnosticism two weeks ago with 2 John, and we will discuss libertinism uh, this morning. And thus, Jude called the church to fight in the midst of intense spiritual warfare for the truth. And so Jude is going to give us five overarching strategies for continuing our fight for the faith today as well. Lots to get to, so we're going to dive right in. Would you stand with me as we read it first in its entirety, the entire book of Jude? It is the longest, but it's still only 25 verses. Here the word of the Lord. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who were long ago designated for this condemnation, God, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment on, of the great day. 
Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds, waves uh, 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 swept along by the winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and from all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word, for little obscure books like Jude, difficult to understand as they may be. We trust that Jude packs a powerful message for us this morning. Father, I pray that in the midst of the interpretation, in the midst of the, the exposition and explanation, that that big message would not be lost, that, that, that this would not just be a history lesson. We need more than information this morning. We need transformation. So, Father, would you help us to not just 
be hearers of the word, to not just understand your word this morning, but to internalize it and to apply it and to respond to it and live it out in our own day, in our own lives this week. We pray this for our good and for your glory, Jesus, in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Verses 1 through 4 is Jude's introduction of sorts. He is answering who he's writing to, what he's writing, and why he's writing it. First, who is writing whom here? Verse 1, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ. Now notice, Jude doesn't emphasize his earthly half-brother status to Jesus, but rather his spiritual subservient status, and you're going to see why soon enough. But he is the brother of James, half-brother of Jesus, writing to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Now, we could just camp out in verse 2 there and spend a whole sermon on the finer points of Reformed theology. God's necessary, effectual, electing, calling of those he loves, God's keeping of those he calls. But Reformed theology, alas, is not the big message of Jude here. And unless you want to spend Easter next week talking about heretics in Jude part two, I'm going to keep moving and suffice it to summarize that Jude is writing to believers, those who are beloved, called, and kept for or by, is a better translation, kept by Christ, Orthodox Christian believers. To them, Jude writes, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. In his mercy, God has forgiven our sins because of Jesus' death in our place on the cross. And his death now brings us peace with a holy and just God, despite our sin. And now, because God poured out his wrath that we deserved on Christ instead, he now pours out nothing but his love on those of us who are in Christ. This is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus for all who would simply trust in him for salvation. Second, what is Jude writing to say? What is his big message? Well, it's not the one he wanted to write. Verse 3, he said, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, Jude says, I'd, I'd rather be expounding on God's mercy and peace and love for those of us now in Christ, but instead... I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. It's the big message, contend. Epagonizomai, it's the Greek word from which we get our word agonize. Jude is an appeal for all believers, first century and 21st century, pastors and laity. Remember, he's writing to all those called, beloved, and kept. Paying your pastor to contend for the faith is not enough, Christian. Jude exhorts you to contend for the faith in a godless world. Agonize for the faith. What faith? Verse 3, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, if you've got a Bible with you this morning, would you hold it up for just a minute? And if you don't, I'm not trying to shame you. We'd love to, to gift you one at the info bar after the service. We'd love to give you a Bible, okay? Hold up your Bibles. 
This, your Bible, it's God's once and for all revelation to the saints. The book of Revelation, chapter 22, says you don't need to add anything to it. You don't take anything away from it. So when the Mormon missionaries come knocking on your door and they tell you that they're Christians too, they just have God's completed revelation through the Book of Mormon, or when your Muslim neighbors tell you they believe in the same God as you, Jesus was his prophet, but so was Muhammad because God needed to add some revelation 600 years later, or when your progressive Christian sister-in-law tells you that she doesn't believe homosexuality is a sin because the Bible is a living document and God is still speaking today, you can point all of them back to Jude verse 3 and simply ask them, then why does God say that the orthodox faith was once for all delivered, past tense, to the saints by the time of Jude's writing at the close of the first century? This revelation was complete. God's word doesn't need updates. What it does need in Jude's day, and especially in our own day, is to be contended for. Why? Verse 4, because certain people have crept in unnoticed, they've infiltrated the church, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. They didn't catch God by surprise. Actually, God ordained their infiltration himself to test and thereby to purify the church. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So we contend for the faith, verse 4, because there are some in the church who are not actually of the church. You can look around and kind of whisper, and is it her, him, right? Shouldn't necessarily do that, but there are, there are posers here. Fakers, wolves in sheep's clothing, as Jesus had warned his followers in Matthew 7.15, who want to lead astray and devour the sheep of God's flock. And in verse 4, Jude gives us their two primary identifying characteristics that he is going to spend the rest of his letter fleshing out in more detail. How do you know if someone is a wolf? Number one, ungodly behavior. And number two, unbiblical beliefs. Ungodly behavior, unbiblical beliefs. Jews says they're ungodly. They pervert the grace of God. They, they preach cheap grace as an excuse to live however they want, lives of sensuality and licentiousness. And secondly, they espouse unbiblical beliefs by denying our only master and Lord Jesus. The Greek word for master is despotes. It's where we get our word despot. A king with absolute power. And the word Lord, kurios, is a slave owner. That is who Jesus is, friends. Jesus has total authority over mind, body, soul, strength, the whole life, every part of every true believer. In contrast to these deceivers who claim that you can have Jesus as your savior, savior and then go on living however you darn well please. That is cheap grace. It doesn't cost you a thing, and it's worth exactly what you paid for it. Jude says that is not the gospel. And so that is the, the who, what, why of Jude's message here. And the rest of verses 5 through 25, he's going to give us the how. If we are supposed to contend for the faith, 
How do we do it? Five ways. Number one, you remember heretics of the past. Number one, remember. You know what's the saying? If you don't learn from the past, you're what? Doomed to repeat it, right? And so Jude exhorts his church to learn from the past. Specifically, he offers them three Old Testament illustrations here of past heretics. Now, you're going to notice as we work our way through the letter that Jude is filled with Old Testament examples. While he does not quote directly from the Old Testament, there are at least nine allusions to it here. The first three of which we find in verses 5, 6, and 7. He says, now I want to remind you that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Now, some of you are scratching your heads because you thought that Jesus only showed up in the New Testament, right? But in Luke chapter 24, after Jesus came back from the dead, he appeared to a couple of his own confused disciples on the road to Emmaus. And we hear, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus is on every page of scripture, if you look close enough. Who do you think parted the Red Sea? Moses? The guy who tried to use his speech impediment as an excuse to leave God's people in slavery another 400 years? (laughs) Moses did not part the Red Sea. No, Jesus parted the Red Sea, miraculously saving his people, only to have certain people creep in and instigate grumbling, distrust, and rebellion amongst God's people against God for 40 years and they're wandering in the desert. And so God disciplined them with fire, with snakes. He even opened the ground and let it swallow them whole because God will not stand idly by and watch his people be led astray by wolves and neither should we. Second example, verse 6. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Now what in the world is going on there? It's a reference to Genesis chapter 6. And the fallen angels turned demons, we studied last year in Genesis, who followed Lucifer in his rebellion against God and then continued that rebellion on earth by fornicating with human women. It's a bizarre story, but it is a biblical story. It's true. It was the reason God sent the flood. I did a whole Ask the Pastor podcast episode on it, and so you can go back and listen to that last year, but uh, I'm I'm, going to move on. Suffice it to say, like the demons who are doomed to be damned to an eternity of darkness on the day of judgment, are Jude's first century seditious heretics. Third example, verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. That's Genesis chapter 19. Again, from last year for us, this time, instead of angels raping humans it was humans trying to rape angels and homosexual gang rape at that you can say what you want about the bible but it does not try and dress up the darkness of this world that we live in it is honest there is real evil out there in the world and the bible doesn't gloss over it it confronts our sin head-on jesus confronted it head-on So what you've got here in verses 5, 6, and 7 are the interrelated sins of infidelity, of insubordination, and of immorality, respectively. 
Refusing to trust God, refusing to submit to God, refusing to follow God's ways. And these first century wolves infiltrating Jude's church are just the latest manifestation of an ancient apostasy. New heretics, same old heresies. So we need to remember, church, today, you and I, apply it today for us. We need to read, we need to study little books like Jude, filled with big warnings against false teaching. We need to learn from the past, lest we be doomed to repeat it and let certain people like this creep into our churches today. Okay, so how do you know who they are? Second strategy for contending for the faith. Number two, we've got to recognize heretics. Recognize them. Jude lists for us six characteristics here of false teachers. And notice the continuity with verses 5 through 7. He opens in verse 8. He says, in like manner. These heretics today, they're just like the the apostate ancient Israelites, the rebellious demons, the depraved Sodomites. And he continues his list of nefarious traits in verses 8 through 10. Number one, they rely on their dreams. This is infidelity, again, reiterated. Remember, the faith has been once for all delivered to the saints. God's self-revelation in the scriptures is complete. It's final. It's authoritative. It is sufficient. So if someone shows up to you claiming, God spoke to me personally, God came to me in a vision, Jude says, you better listen very carefully to the next words out of their mouth. Because if you can't draw a fairly direct line between their message, this dream, this alleged revelation, and this revelation, then you need to steer clear. God doesn't contradict himself. Number two, verse eight, they defile the flesh. That's immorality once again. The Apostle Paul lists for us in Galatians chapter five the works of the flesh. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, he says, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Know a tree by its fruit. Anybody else secretly fascinated with documentaries about cults? Anyone? Okay, a few of us. What does virtually every cult have in common? Right? It's always a, a charismatic leader with dreams and visions. But what is God's secret message? Seems like it always involves the cult leader saving the world by taking as many young teenage brides as he can fit into his bed, right? Sexual immorality, they defile the flesh. Number three, insubordination, again. Verse eight, Jude's false teachers, just like the fallen angels of Genesis six, they reject authority. Listen, church, anyone who comes to you and claims to be an authority unto themselves, you remember how the crowds were astonished with Jesus' teaching because he taught as one who possessed authority intrinsically and not like their scribes and Pharisees who had to ground everything that they said in the Old Testament. You know why that baffled the crowd so much? Because only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus has the authority inherently to do that. I don't possess any authority up here 
inherently when I stand in the pulpit. You don't have any authority in and of yourself. All our authority is derivative. It is derived authority from God. He alone is authoritative. He has authoritatively inspired the scriptures as his once-for-all self-revelation. So to the extent that my preaching, my words, accurately reflect God's words up here in the pulpit, then yes, you should respect, not reject, authority. Hebrews 13, 17 exhorts the church, laity, obey your church leaders and submit to them. Authority is good for you. It's good for me. It's God-ordained, in fact. If submission was good enough for Jesus, 1 Corinthians 15, 28, Jesus the Son submits to God the Father, then it ought to be good enough for you. Submission is not a dirty word, not in the church. And we are all under authority, except these rebellious wolves. So don't trust them. Number four, Jude summarizes all of these three previous sins with this one. They all find their ultimate source in immodesty, pride, had to continue the eyes. Pride, immodesty. Pride was the original sin, lack of humility. It's the root cause of all sin. How do you end up as an authority unto yourself? It's when you conclude that clearly you are the smartest person in the room, the only one worth listening to, God included. So there's not going to be any authority over me. Pride can take many different forms for Jude's heretics, They were blaspheming the glorious ones. Verse 8, talking trash about God's holy angels. That's what they were doing. You've noticed a lot of talk about angels and demons in Jude already. There's no way around it. The world of the Bible is unapologetically supernatural, okay? Literally beyond nature. If you are a naturalist, and there has to be a perfectly logical... um, you know, within the laws of science and nature type of explanation for everything that happens for you, then you're not going to like the Bible very much because it is supernatural, which makes sense if it was written by a supernatural God who himself established those laws of nature and chooses to defy them when it pleases him, sometimes just to prove that he can But why blaspheme, why slander these angels, these God's glorious ones, because who needs angels when you've got your own dreams and visions, right? Psalm 8.5 states that God made man a little lower than the heavenly beings, that is, the angels. We are made a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor, but false teachers don't like that. They're not content to be a little lower than God's holy angels or than God himself for that matter. So in their pride... They blaspheme the glorious ones. Verse 9, but when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So this is an, an apocryphal story. It is not biblical. Jude gets it, borrows it from another first century book called The Assumption of Moses. Later in verse 14, Jude's going to quote from another apocryphal book, the book of Enoch, This is one of the reasons that Jude itself was one of the last books to be universally accepted into the canon of Scripture in the 4th century A.D. when the 27 books of the New Testament were finally locked in. But it should be noted here in Jude's defense that the Apostle Paul also quoted 
not just non-biblical, but pagan philosophers on at least three separate occasions in his letters, Acts 17, 28, 1 Corinthians 15, 33, Titus 1, 12. All truth, after all, is God's truth, right? Even pagans and blind pigs can find acorns every now and again. So if Jude quotes from First Enoch, or if I quote from, from Taylor Swift, or from The Office, or from Dora the Explorer, up here, as I've been known to do on occasion from the pulpit, truth is truth. But Jude's point here is about the archangel Michael is that even he didn't have the audacity to pronounce judgment against Satan. And Satan is one of the bad angels. He's a fallen angel. He's not even one of the glorious ones. But Romans 12, 19 warns us, judgment belongs to God alone. So, Verse 10, but these people, they blaspheme not just the angels, but all that they don't even understand. They are ignorant. Fifth trait, they're ignorant. Not only are they prideful, but they are ignorantly prideful. If you're going to talk a big game, you better at least know what you're talking about. I'm an NBA fan, and so I love the documentary The Last Dance. Any of y'all see that one about the 1990s Chicago Bulls teams? Michael Jordan talked a lot of trash. He is a pretty prideful dude. But in fairness, he is Michael Jordan. So you compare that with a guy like Brian Russell, who is you know, in the documentary, this no-name rookie on the Utah Jazz who had the audacity to say to Jordan's face after he had stepped away from basketball to play baseball for a couple years that Jordan must have retired because he knew uh, he couldn't score if Brian Russell was guarding him. That's why he retired. And so what did Michael do? He came out of retirement to win two more championships in 97 and 98 by hitting two game-winning shots in the finals right over who? Want to guess? Brian Russell. It's bad to be prideful, but it's just downright embarrassing to be ignorantly prideful like these heretics. Lastly, number 10, they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. These heretics are incontinent. Now, I know what that word typically means. No control over your bladder, your rectal sphincter, but the secondary definition in, in the dictionary is lacking in moderation or self-control, especially of sexual desire. And more importantly, I couldn't ruin my alliteration of, you know, the letter I here. So they're incontinent. They're like unreasoning animals. Maybe you remember that song, You and Me, Baby, We Ain't Nothing But Mammals, so let's do it like they do on the Discovery Channel. Remember that one? That is these heretics. They celebrate their animalistic impulsivity. It is instinctive for animals to mate willy-nilly. If it feels good, do it is a great mantra if you're a bunny or a bonobo. But the Christian worldview says that we are not just unreasoning animals, that God made us special in his image. And part of what that means is he gave us a prefrontal cortex for a reason, namely, for reason. On the other hand, if you just blindly follow your feelings, it will lead you to destruction. It's not a good worldview. It's not a Christian worldview. 
follow your heart, follow your feelings. So infidelity, immorality, insubordination, immodesty, ignorance, and incontinence, this is how we recognize heretics. Number three, third strategy for contending for the faith. Once you've recognized them, you need to rebuke them. Rebuke them, call them out. Jew continues in verse 11. He says, woe to them. And what does he rebuke these heretics for? For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. Three more Old Testament references. We're going to run out of time to, to go deep into Genesis 4. Cain, Numbers 22 through 24, Balaam. Number 16, Korah. He's the one that the ground swallowed up. Cain was rash, Balaam was greedy, Korah was prideful. The list goes on. Verse 12, they're hidden reefs. If you're not careful, they will make shipwreck of your faith. Verse 12, they're shepherds feeding themselves. They are like the condemned shepherds of Ezekiel chapter 34. Thus says the Lord God, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? They're selfish leaders, not the commended shepherds of 1 Peter 5. Where Peter says, shepherd the flocks of God that is among you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples selflessly to the flock. Verse 12, they are waterless clouds, swept away by the winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Cliff's notes, they're not good. They're not good people. They're not just useless, waterless, fruitless. They are destructive. They're wild waves, they're wandering stars, crashing meteors. And God is going to damn them to utter darkness forever. Verses 14 through 15 just reiterate that. With another reference from the book of Enoch, it says God will convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in an ungodly way of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against them. I don't know if you caught it, but these heretics are really ungodly. And Jude rounds out his description of them in verse 16. He says they're grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They're loudmouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Now, I imagine by this point... If Jude's letter was being read aloud to the church at their regular Sunday gathering like this, you could probably cut the tension in the room with only the very sharpest of knives. Like if I'm a sheep in that flock facing these kinds of wolves, these kinds of folks are, are bumping elbows with me at the communion table, the love feast, I'm probably beside myself. You remember, I mean, these are the days before church shopping. You don't just tune in to any of the other 127 evangelical churches right here in town, down the street from the comfort of your own couch. No, unless you're going to walk 30 or 40 miles to the next closest church, who's probably dealing with all the same problems anyway, these are the people you're stuck with. These are the kinds of people that are still in churches today. There are sinners in every church in the world today. Probably even heretics. There's probably heretics in just about every church. 
So Jude, what is an orthodox, beloved, called and kept contender for the once for all faith to do? Number four, you resist heretics. Verses 17 through 23, you don't just recognize them and rebuke them. You need to actively resist them. How? Seven ways, very quick, I promise. Seven ways. Number one, expect them. Verses 17 and 18, he says, Remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. That's a direct quote, this time from Scripture, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3. But Judah's saying, don't be surprised when you encounter heresy. Expect it. Jesus himself predicted it, Matthew 24. Number two, recognize them. Already talked about it. Jude is really intent on making sure we know how to spot a heretic. They are the people, verse 19, who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. Number three, grow spiritually. The best defense is a good offense. You need to be growing. Now we're finally moving on from these heretics. He says, verse 20, but you, he's turning his attention from them to you, church, you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. How do you do that? How do you, how do you build yourself up in the faith? If your soul was a muscle, what kind of weights would you use to give it a good workout? Answer, God's word. God's word. 2 Timothy 3, the sacred writings will make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training, workout in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. If you want to get spiritually jacked, you need to get in God's word. How many of you, be honest, if I had stood up here before today and I said, hey, you remember that story from the book of Deuteronomy when the archangel Michael argued with the devil over the body of Moses? How many of y'all could have called me on it? Could have said, wait a minute, I remember something about that from Jude in the New Testament, but I don't think he was actually quoting from the Old Testament. I don't think that's a story in there. How many of you, if I told you to open up your Bibles this morning, to the book of Enoch. You would search the table of contents thinking you, you must have bought the wrong version. Friends, knowing the books of the Bible might not make you godly, but knowing the Bible will. And it is essential for you. Not just your head. There are plenty of heretics who've got it all up here, but do you have it down here? Do you have his word in here? Have you hidden God's word in your heart that you might not sin against him? Psalm 119.11. Do you meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is in it? Joshua 1.8. This is your spiritual peloton. Nor to track. You know, whatever 
decade, you need me to reference your Chuck Norris approved Total Gym 2000. It's, it's, this, is, this is the only piece of, of spiritual equipment that you will ever need for training in righteousness that you may be complete, equipped for every good work. Number four, pray constantly. Pray constantly. Verse 20, praying in the Holy Spirit. You know the armor of God from Ephesians chapter 6? that protects us against the fiery darts of the enemies, of the enemy. So you've got the, the belt of truth, the, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, all of that, the whole suit. But you remember what holds it all together. What does Paul mention? All important right there at the end. Paul says, pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Prayer is like the chain link metal that knits the whole rest of the suit together. Your defense against the enemy falls apart without prayer. Number five, pursue holiness. Verse 21, keep yourself in the love of God, he says. Now, God's love for you in Christ, this is important to understand, is unconditional. God's love is always there, but you do not always experience it to quite the same degree, do you? Here's why. Skip Heitzig uses the analogy of a shadow on a sunny day. Imagine that you show up here next Sunday, as you should for Easter. Don't all need to come to the first sunrise service. But imagine you show up at the 8 o'clock sunrise service, and it's still, let's keep praying, but you know, could be 40, 50 degrees that early in the morning. But it's going to be a beautiful sunny day. Imagine we're all you know, right out here on the parking lot, You're not going to be hiding in the shadow cast by the building. You know, the sun rises in the east, building cast a shadow. Not many people are going to be sitting in the, in the shade next Sunday like you do over the summer in July when we have services outdoors. No, you're going to make sure you get a nice sunny spot out maybe even on the lawn if you have to. In the same way God's love, like the sun, it's always there, but your sin is like an umbrella or a building, or a cloud, cast a shadow, keeps you from fully experiencing the full beauty and joy of God's love for you. And so Jude says, keep yourself in the love of God. How do you do that? By mortifying sin, killing sin, and by pursuing holiness. Hebrews 12, 14 says, strive for holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. The Christian faith is not a passive one. It's hard work, but it's good work. It's worth it to strive for intimacy with the Lord. Number six, keep an eternal perspective. Keep an eternal perspective. Verse 21, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. See, heretics are all about the here and now. In Jude's day, it was immorality and immodesty. You know, if it feels good, do it. You can be your own authority. Today, it's the health and wealth and happiness. Uh, Jesus wants you to have your best life now. But it's always about now. It's not, en it's not enough for heretics to wait. Jude says, wait. Christ's mercy that leads to eternal life that you're only going to fully receive upon 
your glorification in heaven, in the afterlife, it's worth the wait. Just wait. Be patient. And number seven, while you're waiting, reach out to others. Earth is not just a waiting room. We're not just twiddling our thumbs for God to take us home. We're here for a reason. Reach out to others. Verses 22 and 23, have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Three categories of people he lists there. Number one, genuine believers who are just less spiritually mature and thus more prone to doubt. They're prone to entertain these heretics' arguments. Jude says, have mercy on them. Have patience with them. Just keep loving them. The truth is going to set them free. Number two, there are others who are not simply on the right path with a few honest questions and doubts along the way. No, these are those who are on a path leading to the fires of hell. And if someone doesn't intervene and warn them, save them, snatch them off the path, talk some some biblical sense, pray some biblical sense back into them, then they are at risk of being lost forever. Do you know people like that? Have you invited them to Easter next week yet? When was the last time you talked to them about faith, about Jesus? And finally, number three, there are those who you show mercy to by showing them the door. Because you fear them, mercy with fear, you fear them contaminating the whole church if they are allowed to remain. These are the heretics themselves that Jude's talking about in category three. And he uses one last really graphic uh, illustration image here of fecal stained underwear. That's what's going on in the Greek. Paul said of the heretics in Galatia, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Jude is less refined here. A little poop will ruin your whole underwear, is what he's saying. But reaching out to others, especially through evangelism and apologetics, this is one of the most effective ways to resist heresy personally for yourself. If you are always ready to make a defense for the hope that is within you, it tends to increase your own hope, to build your own faith. And so we need to be doing it, telling them, fire snatchers, you know. Praying, interceding, and inviting, welcoming unbelievers to come and hear about a risen Lord. Be a contender for the faith this Easter season. But in closing, in closing here, what, what about when you fail? What about, what about when you fail to contend for the faith? When you fail to remember heretics because you don't know your Bible like you should? When you fail to recognize wolves because you haven't refined your sense of discernment, you don't know good from evil, godliness from wickedness like you should? What about when you fail to rebuke heretics because I don't like conflict or that feels unloving and so sin goes unchecked in the church and then before you know it, you are failing to resist their sin yourself because it's easier, frankly. It is like swimming downstream for a sinner to sin. And guess what? You're a sinner. So where do you turn when all else fails? And when you fail, as you will inevitably, you better, number five, you better rely 
on Jesus. Rely on the Lord, not yourself. And because this is perhaps the most beautiful benediction in all of Scripture, we're just going to simply end here reading verses 24 and 25 again. Let me read it for us. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, you're not. Left on your own, you will make shipwreck of your faith in a heartbeat. But praise God, Christ is able to keep you till the end. And so you better rely on him, Christian. And to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen and amen. Let's pray.